Hello, come on in and grab a seat, dear friends, for this, the final episode of this season of Out to Lunch. For our last hurrah, I'm joined by an actor who's one of the best verse speakers of his generation. He's often called upon to narrate everything from TV programmes to reciting alongside full orchestras. His film break came when he starred opposite Emma Thompson and Helena Bonham Carter in Howard's End, for which he was nominated for a BAFTA. He followed that with roles in Zeffirelli's Jane Eyre, Notting Hill, Iris and Van Helsing. He's a former artistic director of Sheffield Theatres and a familiar face on TV. TV, most recently appearing in both The Crown and playing Siegfried in Channel 5's All Creatures Great and Small. Today we hear what he learned from his actor parents, what makes him furious, many things as it happens, and all about that time he appeared in Doctor Who. It's actor and theatre director Sam West. You can play the Rani's assistant in the Children in Need episode. And I said, I'm there. And um, it's famously the worst episode of Doctor Who ever made and wasn't released on DVD until quite recently because of some rights issues. And frankly, I wish it still remained unreleased. Sam West has often said that he plays a lot of toffs, he's played Tory MPs, he's played Edwardian gentlemen and so forth and talked about his privilege and frankly, so have I. So I thought we should face this head on and I have come to the Ritz on London's Piccadilly, opened by Cesar Ritz in 1906, one of London's grandest hotels. Uh, this is certainly the grandest place we've ever come to for an episode of Out to Lunch. And I think, well, I think it's going to be quite something. Should we go inside? Hello, sir. Welcome. How are you? Fine, thank you. <laughs> I'm just, I mean, I'm astounded. Please do. So I take it you've never been in the William Kent room before? I never have. I think I would remember. We've both put on ties, haven't we? Yes, and undone our top buttons. <laughs> yeah. What I thought I would ask you to do is describe this room. <laughs> okay. It's extraordinarily rich, almost baroque in the amount of gold. The walls are printed red silk, uh, and the ceiling is, I mean, breathtaking, literally breathtaking. I, I, I walked in and went, <gasps> The idea that anybody would think that this was... I mean, it's quite an, it's quite an overwhelming place to have lunch, <laughs> put it that way. Well, <laughs> you've talked about privilege yeah. in your life, and yeah. I've talked about privilege in my life, and I thought either we could dodge it or we could run straight <laughs> into the burning fires of privilege and yeah. sit in a gorgeous no, let's room. Do it. And... I mean, I have to say NFI at this level. I, um, I, I've never been... Um, NFI? Not fucking invited. <laughs> Uh, I mean, this sort of level of privilege is um, quite beyond me, but it's very nice to be here. Isn't Thank it? Thank you for asking. I have to ask you about one thing. You, you gave an interview, and one of the questions was, best kiss of your life. <laughs> and you said, Julia Roberts for Notting Hill, and they cut it. So there are so many questions. Okay. <laughs> what did Laura say when she read that answer? Well, um, I, I think I ran my answers past her. I mean, of course I don't mean that the best kiss of my life was Julia Roberts. It was a period linger in a scene uh, in Notting Hill. It's the, it, it was the kiss at the Kenwood scene. It was. And the filming Henry James. It's the James. only scene I'm in. Blink and you miss it. Yes, you're, you're, yeah. you're there and yeah. he, uh, Hugh, Hugh Grant, Grant overhears you over talking yes, to her. About some, Who is that man? Yeah, the most indiscreet man in England. I don't even have a character name. And I think even by then I was doing so many period jobs that I was a sort of gag. You know, <laughs> right. I turned up Let's in a frock coat. Let's get West, he's available. It was two days' work and, um, and very, very happy days' work they were. In fact, Julia Roberts had had a week off 
And I remember, and I tell people this because I think it's great, um, which makes it worthwhile on her part, I suppose. She was walking back to the set from her trailer and she passed perhaps 30 members of crew and greeted them all by name. All with, 30? Yeah, without exception. And she'd been on the film for a while by then, but she knew everybody's name. And I thought, I remember thinking, I don't care if this is a trick, I don't care if you set up with a list, it's worth it. And here I am telling you about it. Um, I think that's a very piece, a piece of very good manners. So that, would I be fair in saying the answer to that question, best kiss of your life, Julia Roberts, Nutty Hill, was basically just showing off? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was nice to remember. I don't think it exists. It's certainly not on the DVD. What, the kiss? Yeah, maybe I just imagined it. <laughs> <laughs> now listen, before we go on, there is a menu to your right. Okay. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Hello. My name is Matteo. I'll be one of your waiters for today. Brilliant. Mm -hmm. If you have any questions about the food, I'll be here for you to answer. So you go first. I think Ritz Grand Marnier Souffle might be one of the most exciting so forward sentences you, I've ever seen. <laughs> so you've got, I mean, you're looking at dessert first. I'm really impressed that you've actually gone there first. Okay. Brilliant. Well, the souffle takes quite a long time, doesn't it? But we're going I to be here wait. for a bit. So, uh, I'd like the crab to start, please, and yes. then the pigeon. Thank you. And I'll have the langoustine and the turbot, please. Um, and then we were advised to order dessert now. So you want the Gramonier souffle, the Ritz Gramonier souffle? I certainly do. Um, I don't think I've ever wanted a pudding more. <laughs> okay, and I'll have the milk chocolate raspberry and rose. And will you go a glass of wine with each course? They're both called Matteo, which makes it yeah. so Matteo is your life easier. Matteo one and Matteo two. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I might just have one glass of wine, I think, but. Um, but wine. Half a glass, very yes, why not? That'd be lovely. Yes, that'd be lovely. That'd be lovely. Fantastic. Thank you. Lovely. Thanks. So, we have a. I mean, you are very much older than me, Sam. Very. I mean, I think it's three months, isn't it? Yeah, it's eight, eight or nine weeks. <laughs> Should I, I steal your line? <laughs> I'm so sorry. Bastard. I did work it out. Um, but we have an absolutely shared childhood experience. Go on. So, in 1974. Both of us were, obviously independently, taken by our parents to the Adelphi Theatre on Shaftesbury Avenue to see Trevor Martin in Doctor Who, and both of us went backstage. My dad was at drama school with Trevor Martin at the Guildhall. I don't know if either of your parents were also... That's how they knew him? They worked with... My father worked with him on a production of King Lear for Prospect Theatre Company, which I saw a couple of years before in Australia. And we went to see Doctor Who. Um, Doctor Who on stage. Which I was with, with Trevor Martin as Doctor Who, and I can't remember the name of the show, but do you remember the, the Lobster Claw? The funny thing is, I don't remember the Lobster Claw, but I do remember is going inside the TARDIS. I didn't do that. And, I would remember. <laughs> and discovering, to my absolute distress as a, what would we have been, eight? Yeah. Uh, it was a box. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have actually been inside the, the TARDIS professionally, but only the inside bit where it's where it's. What the set, the set down in Cardiff? No, no. Uh, old Who. I was absolutely desperate to be in Doctor Who before it finished, and um, so I called my agent in some distress um, in the early nineties and said, "Look, it's finishing." I didn't know then that it would ever come back. And I still haven't been in it, and I've played Hamlet, and I can juggle five balls, and it's my only professional ambition that I haven't realised. And she took this quite seriously. 
and called back and said, you can play the Rani's assistant, Kate O'Mara's assistant, in the Children in Need episode. And I said, I'm there. They said, there's no pay, it doesn't matter. Doing it for charity, I'm in. And um, it's famously the worst episode of Doctor Who ever made and wasn't released on DVD <laughs> until quite recently because of some rights issues. And frankly, I wish it still remained unreleased because anyway, there it is and I'm in it and I'm inside the TARDIS working with the great Kate O'Mara as the Rani. And my character was originally called Syrian, which was a pun on Sir Ian because they offered it to McKellen and he said no. <laughs> so I was, well, I couldn't be cheaper because neither of us got paid, but I was younger and available. Uh, and, uh, and I was christened, the character was christened in a gay Doctor Who fanzine called Cottage in Peril, Shag, and I was the monthly pin-up, um, which remains, I think, one of my m proudest professional moments. Well, that's, that's brilliant. We have a couple of canapes. Here's a welcome from Chef. Thank you very much. It's a Braxton mousse. It's filled with a wood roast pepper puree topped with a basil emulsion. And then also a liver parfait glazed with a sour cherry and port glaze and a gingerbread on it. That sounds amazing. Do you start with the, do you start with the, with the other one? I think. You can start wherever you like. Start there. <laughs> there are no rules. No, good. People always inquire about your childhood because... Yeah. Uh, I'm sure they do yours as well. Yeah, they do. <laughs> And you've, you once said, very simply, when people say, what's it like to have a famous parent? And your response was? I'd, I don't really know what it's like not to. I mean, they don't wake up and sort of come downstairs running their lines. They're just parents. But then people at school say, can I have their autograph when Forty Towers or even Edward VII was on in the midst of my mother's I should say, it's Timothy You, you probably should. Uh, Timothy West and Prunella Scales. Scales are my parents. Yeah. And uh, my mother had done a series called Marriage Lines, uh, with Richard Briers, which went to five series, only three of which I think still exist, uh, but was very successful. And so she had a bit of an, a name for light comedy. And my father had been working with a company called Prospect, who he continued to work with um, all through his life, but was, I suppose, a jobbing classical actor when he got the leading role in Edward VII for ITV, which was 13 episodes. And he played Edward from the age of, I think, 29 to when he died in his... 70s. So yeah, by the time I was in the second year of secondary school, my parents were... Richard Osmond said this on telly the other day. He said, when you do a, a question on telly on Pointless about 1970s television, the numbers are always really high. She said, if you were on telly in the 70s, you're basically famous because there were only three channels. Yeah, and, and you're guaranteed an audience of guaranteed five, every, six, yeah. seven million, at the very lowest, yeah. and up into... Yeah, absolutely the lowest. And, and nobody recorded anything, at least until sort of the late 70s, because you couldn't. So you, so you sat in and watched it. Thank you. And our sourdough bread. Isn't that beautiful? Also, Chef, would like to show you our beautiful Anjou pigeon. Be you're meeting your you're meeting your main course. Exactly. <laughs> that's uh, delightful. Isn't Thank it? Uh, that's a, that's a pigeon sitting in a, in, a, in a little meadow glade, isn't it? Um, yes, <laughs> upside down and naked, and upside very, down, very naked. much dead. <laughs> well, it's better than the alternative. Have, have, you have to have I've that. Got, okay. Um, I met your mum uh -huh. uh, when I was at uh, uh, Haberdashers. She came to talk to the school. I don't know why, in retrospect. She might have known the headmaster. Well, no, because this is my really strong memory, is her cutting him down to size <laughs> at something stupid he'd said. She might still have known him. Oh, really? <laughs> No, she she, definitely, was, she definitely didn't know that. Wonderfully was, censorious. How good, actually. I, 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 I got involved because I'd actually been thrown out of school and I was doing my good works to get back into 
and being part of sixth form four and whatever it was called. Um, I want to know what you were thrown out for, I should know. Oh, getting stoned. Oh, Don't. that's such a... And See, no. I didn't really get stoned till I was 33. I wasn't a rebellious 16-year-old, I was a rebellious 33-year-old. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's good to see you're not entirely stoned here. So thanks for turning up. You know. I, I had a year where I couldn't go anywhere. Without... What, properly? Yeah. don't remember much about the year. I mean, it's very pleasant. Were you um, meant to be working or were you just lost in a dope haze? I wasn't doing a play. <laughs> I know that. Quite clearly. No. Which year? My 33rd year, I suppose, 98, 99. Was it just you really liked it? Yeah, I hadn't done it before. I was over that by the time I started working at the Royal Shakespeare Company, which was good. Well, you had to do Hamlet there, didn't you? I did Richard II first. But yeah, that was, that was drug-free. Um, <laughs> so I shouldn't laugh because it's meant to be a serious issue, but it's the idea of you in your 30s only finally becoming a stoner. Yeah, I know. And then having to kind of rock up to Stratford yeah. with quite some hefty monologues to get yeah, into your very own. long speeches. To be but or that's not the to trouble with drugs, isn't it? They're nice. <laughs> that's what everybody says. Just say no. Is that yeah, Why would we say no when saying nice? When saying yes is so much nicer. Food's arriving. Good. Oh, isn't that pretty? Please. Oh, we haven't had a cloche on how to lunch. And <sighs> theater, here we go. Theatre. Theatre. Of course. Thank you. Bravo. Langustine. Sir, here are your crabs. So from the bottom there is a lobster and crab jelly, avocado puree and croutons. There is a white uh, meat of the crab mixed with some mayo, fine herbs, and uh, some uh, um, low veg, celery, a green apple foam on the top. On the side, a crispy tartlet with trout roe, fennel pollen, and a mousse made with the brown part of the crab. For you, Mr. Reno, one of Chef John Williams' signature dishes, langoustine à la nage, served on a bed of cauliflower puree and uh, garnished with the fennel fronds, baby leeks, seasonal herbs, but the real masterpiece is this wonderful sauce à la nage made with the dulce seaweed, fine herbs. Thank you very much. Welcome. One take wonder. Yeah, he knows his lines. It's great. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> no retakes. You responded um, to something that, I don't know if he's also a friend of yours, but a friend of mine, Andy Nyman, mm. great actor. Great actor. Uh, who also wrote a book... Uh, which on the outside could look like the most grandiose title, The Golden Rules of Acting. Mm. And you think it's some Stanislavski term, but actually it's a book about how to keep sane in the business. Yep. And it's mostly says, useful. Um, however people are presenting themselves, they're probably as unemployed as you are at various times. I commented on Andy's very helpful tweet by saying... I mean, he's a surpassingly wise man. It's a great bit of wisdom. And I said, try not to compare your blooper reel to everybody else's highlights. Because that's what Instagram or, oh. to a point, Twitter is. You know. But it didn't exist when you started. No. I mean, when you got the part in Howard's End, in, yep. uh, I imagine the film came out in 93, so did you get the part in 92? 91, I think. 91. Um, and you turn up on that set. Did you know Helena Bonham Carter before? Yes, I'd done a play with her, weirdly, um, because she had very good friends. She wasn't at university because, I mean, I'm sure she would have gone if she, she wanted to. She got cast in Lady Jane Grey, she, got she was still at Westminster. Jane, exactly. So, so she was doing um, uh, Room of the View, and, or had done that. And then she came to Oxford to do The Tempest. 
Miranda in the Tempest, and I played Gonzalo. We say came to Oxford to, to the to the university to do it in uh, in a university production. She, I mean, this is a slightly odd because she wasn't at the university. She no. didn't go to university no. at all. No, we, so what? We somebody... bust her in. Um, the the director had a chance to cast her, and we thought, yes, she wants to do it, and she was very nice and very professional. And, um, that was the first time I had. That was the time I had a good conversation with my parents about acting, because I think by this point I'd done quite a lot of plays at university, and my parents thought, and I'd got a little award for one of them, and um, and then I played Gonzalo in The Tempest, who is a an old man, and I remember my dad was my age now, and I remember coming home and saying to my mum. I think I've worked out Gonzalo. I think he's ex-army, so he's quite healthy, stands up straight, um, good voice, and um, quite confident. Um, a bit like, bit like Daddy at this age. And she said, "Yeah, do you know what you're doing?" And I said, "No, what am I doing?" She said, "You're finding intellectually justifiable reasons not to play the part properly." That's interesting. And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, he's an old man and you're 21. Just for a week, put a coat hanger up the back of your jacket, take your contact lenses out, try to grow a moustache, develop a bit of a stoop, become forgetful, everybody will laugh for a week, and then you might find that you're giving a performance. I mean, I think that's probably a sort of slightly rose-tinted version of what she said, but... All those hints were there. So I did, and it worked. And I was quite good, I think. And then I only got asked to play old men for the rest <laughs> of the time at Oxford. But it's a very good note. Did you have a lucky coat hanger, which you used for a <laughs> I had a coat hanger that I used for a bit. And I mean, it's a very good principle, which is keep the same and change what's different. And that's a very good rule for acting. I'm sure it's in Andy's book, and some form of it is, is in Andy's book. And emphasize the bits that are different and feel silly for emphasizing them for a bit. And then one day they'll be natural, and then you'll be more in character, I suppose. I mean, that was the first time that happened. That was really good. You may have heard of the podcast Juicy Scoop. Wondered what it is? Why aren't you listening? Well, I'm its host. Created it, been doing it for seven years. I'm Heather McDonald of Juicy Scoop with Heather McDonald. Now, I could tell you why you should be listening to my show, but my listeners wanted to write the ad for me, and here are some of the things they said. Not your regular juicy podcast. Catch up on all the juicy topics from Hollywood and pop culture to true crime and beyond. Heather McDonald's Juicy Scoop always has great guests, great laughs, and great gossip. It's a comedian's take on the hottest headlines. Juicy Scoop is the pop culture news you want to hear. No BS, no filter, no filler. Raw, real, and in the moment. Throw in the hilarity of amazing comedians that you'll instantly be obsessed with, a juicy crime story, and a dash of normal life in L.A. moments, and you've got yourself an amazing week of Juicy Scoop. Two episodes every week, every Tuesday and Thursday. It will never let you down. If your only interaction with you is via Twitter, you might get the impression that Sam West is constantly livid. Oh, yes. Yes, which is why I leave occasionally. I mean, I'm personally... I mean, politically, I politically engaged and furious with everything Politically very on. angry, yes, absolutely, that's true. Which is, I mean, when I find myself 
shouting into the void. I go away for a bit. Last time I went away for nearly four months. Were you always politically engaged? I don't remember it being a choice. I did say to my mum, I was in the Young Socialists when I was 15, I suppose. And, uh, and I said to my mum, am I going to grow up and turn into a Tory? And she said, no, darling, I think you're too far gone for that. <laughs> Which was, um, well, correct, at least so far. There's always a, a question that's raised. I get it. So I'm, I'm raising the question that comes to me all the time, yeah. which is about having politics that are of the left when you come from a place of privilege. Yeah. People find it in some way hypocritical, don't they? Yes, it's, it's weird, weird, isn't it's, it? It's weird, because if you, you know, turn it round, Colin Kaepernick got it when, when he started kneeling. And everybody went, you're being paid $162 million a year. And you thought we're talking about the NFL player who took the knee during yeah the, during the national anthem and was and was roundly criticised until everybody in the world started doing it and everybody said they, he was right, and I thought what a strange sort of privilege that you're being paid so much money that you're meant to shut up about racism. I mean that's the reverse of what we're talking about, isn't it? I, I like to think of it like that. I mean, the privileges I had as a child, I think I heard a lot of different registers when I was young. Judy Dench was reading poetry and Eileen Atkins was reading poetry and my mum and dad were reading poetry and, you know, it, it rubs off. That was absolutely a privilege. On the other hand, I was also born in 1966, as were you, at the beginning of probably the 15 years of most sustained and intense investment in the arts that this country has ever had. And it made an enormous difference to people who didn't have that sort of privilege. You know, we, we had theatre companies going into schools, performing in places where people said, I thought this wasn't for me, and I've now realised that it can be. And lots of those people go into the profession, and some of them write plays, and some of them make an enormous amount of money for the treasury through VAT on theatre tickets all over the world. Um, much more than it would ever have cost to put those theatre companies into those schools in the first place. But even if you're not talking about the the prosperity of the country. The idea that this stuff is for everybody is not a privilege. And the sort of things that happened to me are being taken to the theatre cheaply, just as you were, being taken backstage, for God's sake, why not? Um, it are being lost. I mean, the arts in recovery from the pandemic reveal themselves to be, to me, more and more a plaything for the rich. I think it's a mark of this. I was actually surprised when the Treasury finally coughed up one point. Five seven billion. Eight, eight seven. Yeah. Well, oh no, you're right. 1.57. I apologise. Um, the, the spirit of the age was not to do that, and yet they did it. They did, and um, they protected the bricks and mortar. And the Arts Council distributed it extremely well, and it was an absolute saver of of buildings and the people who worked in them. And I'm extra extraordinarily grateful. I mean, having run a building and having many friends who do. Yeah, you ran uh, the, the Sheffield, Sheffield Crucible, Crucible. Yeah, Crucible. For, for, for three years. Let's not forget that theatres are not mostly buildings, they're people, audiences and the people who work in them. And, you know, my soundbite is, you're protecting the crown jewels, but unless you support the miners, in 10 years' time, there ain't gonna be any new crowns. It's about the people and the people are suffering. And everybody's suffering. I'm, I'm, this is not special pleading. 
but there is a, a dangerous and widespread belief in, in government in particular, I think, that art is a hobby. Right. I think we need to get something in front of you. Yeah. Under yeah. a cloche again. Really? Yeah. Excellent. Sir, Anjou pigeon. We serve the chew breast. The pigeon is roasted in salted butter, caramelized nicely in the pan and then finished in the oven. Garnish on the side with blackberry, juniper padua, and a uh, foie gras bonbon. I will now finish the dish with the roasting juice of the pigeon. Merci. Sir, the fillet of tarbot, pan fried with some curry salt, braised with butter. In the, on the side, there is a lobster, blanched in a cotillon, steamed basil, herbs and munchon, and this deep was sauce. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. I love the on, way you lurched into French. On the side, a <laughs> floron, filled yeah. with lobster and American sauce, and topped with crispy kombu seaweed. Thank you. I'm actually the only person in my, my family that doesn't speak fluent French. Neither will you, sir. <laughs> uh, you have a lovely Chateau of the Pape, Chateau de Bucastel, 2009. We are in south of the Rhone Valley. Plant of 13 different grape varieties. You get spiciness and complexity to go with your pigeon. While from the sea, we have a lovely Givry Premier Cru Several Moine from uh, the Membaron Tenal, classic Burgundy, lovely Chardonnay. Creaminess that goes very well with the sauce in your next dish. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. So, your Monday guy. Um, delightful. Back to the activism for a moment. Yeah, yeah. Does, um, does Laura, your other half, uh, partner, whatever terms we dance well, around. Well, we're not married, so yes, uh, my, uh, partner, I think. Uh, Darling, girlfriend. Darling girlfriend's uh, fine, girlfriend's fine. Does she ever tell you to get off Twitter? Yes. Does she, does she say, for God's sake, stop this, it's not good for you? Mm. Yes, and she's right. And I expect, in, in, in light of this conversation, I may get off it again quite soon. Really? No, I'm finding it not... not. The, the, the discourse has changed. You know, we, we went through a revolution two years ago that was based on anger and lies, and... You're talking about Brexit? Yeah. Yeah. And anger and lies seem to be the predominant notes of much of the conversations now, and they couldn't not be, really. Manu, you, you're living with a writer who yeah. has... Well, obviously, actors also have a way of channeling what they're feeling about the world but writers rather more literally so. Well, indeed. I mean, she, she has, a, she has a, an outlet. I remember when we first met, uh, it was because she wanted to write a play for the theatre I was running, The Crucible. She's from Sheffield and uh, had seen her first ever play in The Crucible when she was eight and wrote her first play for The Crucible Youth Theatre when she was 18. Um, and she... Um, she said, I want to write a play for your theatre. And we got talking about it. And I said to her, I would like you to write a play for The Crucible about a civil war between the old and the young. This was 15 years ago. And she said, I don't really do politics. <laughs> and then she didn't write the play about the civil can, war. Can I say, which is plainly untrue, because Laura Wade does. The next play she wrote was called Posh which went into the West End with a big splash quote, a good old-fashioned piece of class war. <laughs> across. It, was, it was essentially about the Bullingdon Club it at Oxford. It was essentially about the, the Bullingdon Club at Oxford. And it was as political as you like. Um, and made into a film, which I'm briefly in. And uh, it's an extraordinary play. And uh, yeah, Laura doesn't have a leg to stand on. But I do wish she'd written that play about a civil war between the old and the young. I mean, of course you couldn't now because it's just sort of become reality. We're being governed with policies that absolutely um, privilege the, the old against the young, NI versus tax and landlords versus 
renters. And um, You've been asked this before, but I'd like to hear your answer again, which is, have you thought about taking politics further? You're very politically engaged. You're nuts and bolts. You're chair of the National Campaign for the Arts. I was until very recently. Until yeah. very recently. Yeah. I assume they sacked you, kicked you out. Yeah, absolutely. You you Shut the fuck up. up. Stop <laughs> talking about art. No, I'm sure you stood down after a long service. How many years was that? It was quite a lot. About ten, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you've been involved in many other as patrons of charities. Yeah, I'm and, you, and you're shouty. Yeah, very shouty. I mean, people go... Why Why don't you shut up about it? And it's a bit... I mean, I'm no... Well, I'm, I'm asking you why you don't get noisier about it. OK. Um, well, I'm not elected. That's the first thing. I know a bit about art. So, oh, oh, so I'm asking why you don't... I should be. Yeah. I'm just thinking about somebody like Glenda Jackson, who was a really good MP, I think, on a constituency level and, and, and generally, and then stopped and went back and played King Lear. I mean... But... but Parliament was very different then. I mean, I think being a backbencher is a shit job. I have to admit, there was a point, Karen, eating your dinner, there was a point, only because I want to see the souffle come out. Oh, yeah, sorry. Um, there was a point when the whole Matt Hancock affair uh, blew up mm. and he had to resign for uh, being caught with his hand in, the, in his co a colleague. Yeah, uh, <laughs> in his colleague. Yeah. <laughs> Reported by the Daily Mail the other day. As Matt Hancock on a night out with the lover who cost him his job, which I'm afraid <laughs> I reposted as Matt Hancock on a night out with the penis that cost him his job. Yes, yeah, as that was all her, and, uh, I mean, and we still haven't got out of women blaming it. I know, Jezebel, extraordinary, absolutely. Um, and I, I thought, well, here's the hilarious thing: Matt Hancock was this big swinging deck Secretary of State for Health, and he was having an affair, and that was all very exciting. Yes. And she left her husband to be with a backbench MP. One who was even turned down for a job that the UN decided he was inappropriate for. It, I mean, you know, modern Shakespearean mm. tragedy. Somebody's writing it. Could you check in with Laura and see if she'd like to have a go? I quite want to play Matt Hancock. I've just, I've just <laughs> done a telly, which I'm afraid I can't talk about, but I did get, I did get given a, a set of perfect teeth for reasons of the character. And with the blue suit and the yellow tie. Did you think? I looked exactly like Matt Hancock. <laughs> yeah, I could be in the biopic. And I'm, and I'm cheap. Which brings us to the hilarious thing you've said. I've got so, to answer your question, though. Oh, Why, right, sorry, so, you haven't, yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah. I mean, right, is uh, the idea of putting yourself up for election just horrifying? No, because I've been on... I mean, I've, I've not been elected to the Equity Council, and then I was elected to the Equity Council, and so I talked on behalf of my union... Uh, for, about things that I was reasonably knowledgeable about, and the arts are one of those things. I'm, I'm not knowledgeable about an awful lot of other things. And, I mean, I think being a constituency MP is, is, a, is a, a noble thing. And, and couple that with being a backbench MP. At the moment, I mean, there is, there is a Hamlet connection, actually. If you play a modern version, as we did, you could say that Hamlet is a story about a man whose conscience means that he has to act in a way that the prevailing orthodoxy of the regime does not allow him to act, or would rather he didn't act in. And that is an important person, because that person needs to be heard. I mean, Greta Thunberg is, is you know, who hasn't been invited to COP26, 
is, is a good case in point today. The, the great irony of Hamlet is that the, the mopey goth kicking stones at the beginning, set against the rather shiny, smiley Tony Blair clone uh, who we all applaud, the mopey goth is our guide. So how do we get to a place where we hear from the mopey goth, who by a, an extraordinary irony turns out to be right? Um, because it ain't happening. You know, 130,000, 140,000 people, excess deaths, fight for a plot of land whereon the numbers cannot try the cause, which is not tomb enough and continent to hide the slain. And a select committee report says this is the greatest failing, one of the greatest failings of British health in history, and it's made not a shred of difference. Nobody cares. We're accepting 40,000 deaths a year from something, and the Prime Minister won't wear a fucking mask. I mean, this is, this is criminal. And we, need, we need somebody to come along and say, we're with him or her. Well, that's the thing. Oh. Just listen to you, Sam. You're livid. <laughs> I am livid. I mean, I mean aren't, I, why isn't why isn't more people livid? I, mean, I have to say, I admire um, the anger, and I'm you know. Oh, I don't admire I'm, the anger at all. It's no use because because I'm not standing for election, and I generally shout in a in as you say an echo well, as, as I say an echo chamber, which is what Twitter is, and you know these voices that hold the the government to account. Laura Kunzberg is leaving the BBC. Thank you. And the Sunday Times said, I mean, obviously her, her replacement will need to be um, a good reporter, but they'll also need to be acceptable to the government. Oh, which is outrageous. And you thought, what, 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 hang on. I mean, one can imagine other governments where, where, the, where the ask would be the opposite. The idea that the government says, yes, we're fine with you. I mean, that's, that's a very dark place to be. In answer to the question, why do you stand for election? Isn't it reasonable to say, Sam, because you don't want to. Because you don't want to be an MP. Mm. I don't want to be an MP. I don't want to be an MP. People have asked me similar questions no, as I don't a result to... of various bits of campaigning I've be, done. I don't want to be an MP. And um, I, That's OK. It's perfectly it? reasonable. Yes, perfectly OK. Well, to brighten things up, I mean, I think <laughs> you're right. Yeah, pudding! <laughs> uh, there's dessert approaching. So that's, well, I shall let the professional tell Go you on, what let's it do is. It. Let's do it. Um, Ritz Grand Souffle with Vanilla Chantilly. There we are, sure. Make chocolate and rose mousse filled with uh, raspberries. On the side, there is a raspberry sorbet inside the sugar tree. Brilliant. What have I just got? As wine to complement your Grovanier souffle, we have a lovely Passito di Pantelleria Benria from uh, Donna Fugata. So in the south of Sicily, in the island of Pantelleria, it's beautiful for me. It's like liquid orange juice. Uh, you will enjoy that. And for me, here we have a classic Sauternes, Chateau de la Fripe 2010. Thank you. Enjoy. Well, listen, Sam, before your uh, Ritz Grand Marnier souffle, the four greatest words in the English language, completely loses its tumescence, um, I'm going to say thank you for letting me take you out to lunch. Thank you. Uh, I, I, I have to admit, I think it's almost slightly weird that we've never met before. Yeah, it um, is weird, isn't it? It is a bit weird, given, yeah, given that we were, came into the world three weeks apart. Yeah, exactly. Three months apart. Three months apart. You know, you are that much older yeah, than right, me, and right, I don't right. want to let I you get away will with it. Um, but with underneath this ridiculous ceiling with a souffle and a silver terrine, you know, Monday's all right, isn't it? It's delightful. 
Well, what an experience that was. Uh, I do think the waiters should get a BAFTA for their performance too. Utterly brilliant. Um, thank you to Sam West and to the lovely folk at the Ritz on Piccadilly. If you love the show, do please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share this with literally everyone you know. Leave a review and give us five stars if you can. It really does help us to make more. Out to Lunch is a Something Else and Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged, and performed by me, Jay Rayner, and Robert Rickenberg. The Recording and mix engineer was Josh Gibbs. Assistant producers are Anya Das and Bethany Hocken. The producer is Selena Ream with additional editing from Jemima Rathbone. And the executive producer is Darby Doris. Uh, thank you so much for joining us and to all the marvellous restaurants we've had the pleasure of dining in this season. We will be back in the new year with Bells On. <laughs> <laughs>